Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast today discussing the craze in musician autobiographies. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, still stuck in the recounting childhood dental appointments part of my autobiography. This is Erica Spires, and um, I never think I'm ever going to be cool enough to be able to write a musician autobiography. We'll, we'll get into why. And I'm Brian Hurt, and I'm wearing the only band t-shirt that I own. It's Mouse Rat from Parks and Rec. <laughs> cool. And our guest... Laura Davis Channon, and I'm the author of The Girl in the Back, and I uh, just finished reading Debbie Harry's autobiography, which is interesting because she's a dear friend, and I've known her for a while, and so that's going to be complicated. <laughs> Great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. If you want to hear in detail about Laura's particular book, uh, The Girl in the Back, when she was with the student teachers in the late 70s, go listen to Nakedly Examined Music, episode 84. But you've also worked with other people to put their books together. It's not just you. No, I co-wrote a book called I Am Michael Lago, which is Michael Lago's life story. Michael is actually an old, old friend of mine, but he is also happens to be the person who brought Metallica to the world. He's the one that discovered Metallica. And then he became a bigwig in the recording business and did a lot of work with a lot of other bands, including Cyndi Lauper and many others. And most, I think, importantly, and actually the largest chapter in the book is about Nina Simone and his relationship with her, which was phenomenal. I guess we all knew that she was a bit of a diva, but wow. I mean, wow. <laughs> it was amazing the things I found out about her in, in writing, working on this book. But yeah. And then I'm working on, I may be, I'm not sure yet, it's still sort of in negotiation. I don't know if you ever remember a band called Bow Wow Wow from the early 80s. And the lead singer of Bow Wow Wow, Annabella Lewin, was 13 years old at the time. And she was brought into this band. The band actually was put together by Malcolm McLaren, who was the original manager of the Sex Pistols. I'm sort of in negotiations to co-write her memoir. We've had some really interesting discussions. And to me, I mean, as much as people remember or don't remember Bow Wow Wow, I'm not really concerned about that because the story is phenomenal about what happened to this girl at 13 years old and the advantages that these men took of her. And I'm not talking, you know, sexually or anything. I'm talking about many other things. It's hopefully going to be a really interesting story. Yeah. So we had a lot of sort of general issues to discuss. And we also each kind of picked a book to focus on. Erica, do you want to start kind of give your priors and tell what book you looked at? I actually, you know, some of the listeners, listeners might know, I don't read a lot of nonfiction. I tend to consume my nonfiction more or less in screen time. Whereas in my books, I usually go for something very, I don't like the term that they use when they say women's fiction. Anyway, the stuff that I normally read is like murder mysteries. So I actually was really surprised. Part of what I like about reading a murder mystery at night is that it does make me tired because I'm reading a book. So there is something about that. But then it like leaves me with just enough of something that I start to dream, not necessarily of the book, but it puts me in a state where I'm ready to dream. And I was really 
impressed and surprised that when I read Carrie Brownstein's Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl, it did the same thing for me. So this might be a new thing that I start to pick up more nonfiction. I really liked the way she writes. I did a couple different things with this book. I picked it up both as an audiobook and as an ebook. So I did a little bit of both depending on where I was and what was more convenient for me. And yeah, I thought this book, and I'm not sure we'll see how you guys feel about your own, was definitely less about music than it was about her life and self-reflection. And maybe that's a theme that we see across musician autobiographies anyway. Brian, you want to give some, I don't want to say priors, but (laughs) tell where you're coming at this. Sure. Well, I'm going to one-up Erica on the I don't normally, because although I do read a fair amount of nonfiction, I don't normally read a lot of biography or memoir in part because I have to really be interested in the person in a way that I'm often just not enough in order to do it. And I also don't listen to a lot of music. And it's not that I don't like it. It's just I have a lot of other things I'm very interested in, and that doesn't happen to be one of them. I ended up both reading and listening to the audiobook, I Am Ozzy, which is an autobiography of Ozzy Osbourne, which was ghostwritten. I think it was largely based on stories he told to GQ UK author. And it was narrated by an actor, Frank Skinner, who was also from Birmingham, England, who had that similar sound. And he, you know, he did voice acting. And when he did Sharon's voice, he did it differently. And when he did American's voice, he did them differently. It was a hugely entertaining audiobook experience. And I knew more of the later Ozzy than I did the Black Sabbath. But hearing him talk about some of these things, you know, really made me go and listen to some of these songs. And some I had heard, but to hear Ozzy Osbourne say that he could taste the cocaine when he heard a certain song, like, well, boy, I really want to go listen to that song again and maybe, maybe not experience it quite the same way that Oz is experiencing it. Unfortunately, the audio version was abridged, and that's why I had to go back to the, the print version to kind of fill in the pieces. That's the order that I did it in. This was a great homework assignment, and this is a book I never would have interfaced with without having this podcast. So I'm really grateful to have had that opportunity. I agree with you, Brian. And I also did the same thing where she would talk about specific songs that Slater Kinney had. And I was like, I never really listened to Slater Kinney. So I went back and started listening to a lot of their music. And I was like, this is great. Why didn't I know? Like, why wasn't I into that? So it was a great drive. Having to read a musician memoir 30 years ago, you had to go to the record store or go to the library if you didn't have their music, right? This instant random access to the world's music really has us spoiled. Yeah, Laura, had you read a lot of these before trying to write your own? No, I never really thought about rock and roll musician memoirs. I've never been a big memoir person, more of a biography person. Like I'm reading about 10 different books, so I'm never getting through them all. But one I started was about Shakespeare. And so that's obviously not a rock and roll memoir. But yeah, I do read nonfiction and fiction both. I probably read more fiction than nonfiction. But whatever nonfiction I read, other than if it's a biography, is usually political nonfiction. Like I just read The Bagman by Rachel Maddow, which was really fascinating. And I actually read the biography of Cuomo when, at the start of this whole pandemic thing, because he was just all over the place here in New York, right? And he was constantly on. And it was like, oh, you know, and so I was like, all right, what is with this guy? So yeah, I'm not a big musician memoir reader, but I think that's maybe because I just want to listen to the music more so than anything. One of the questions I had was, there's been a lot of growth in older established musicians being asked to do this. 
it seems like it's almost a standard. It's almost the exception if you don't at least get asked if you're a rock and roll superstar and or, you know, superstar in any other area of music. And there's something about the autobiography as opposed to the biography that makes it almost like a modality of what they normally do. Now, Brian mentioned that one being ghostwritten, and that seems like it maybe is 50-50. I don't know what the percentage is, but it, it's certainly not unusual to have another author involved to actually write this stuff down, but it's at least the musician kind of telling the stories, telling their own things, maybe even narrating their own audiobook in some cases. I wanted to explore the difference between the expression that is writing a song doing the music itself and the expression that is writing your life story, which may or may not, the ones that I like the best, incorporate a lot actually about the music. But that doesn't actually even seem to be the norm so much. It's more what it was like growing up in that time and meeting all those wonderful people. Well, I mean, wouldn't you be perfect for that? Because you're a musician and a songwriter. I mean, if anybody gave a shit about my life, I give half a shit, Mark. I don't know. Yeah, I quote like a little bit of a shit. But I mean, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, I mean, can't you theorize about the difference of the value and the import of writing a song and what that tells you about the musician or the songwriter versus them putting it out on black and white paper in a book? Yeah, it depends entirely on the character of the musician. And strangely, a number of these that I've read, I realize I've read close to a dozen of these in the course of doing these music episodes. I didn't realize it was so many. Yours was the one that was like the first one that was foremost on the book, less so on because you didn't really write the song so much for, you know, we had some things to draw on that you had writing credits on, but that's not like the thrust of your career was that you wrote this book and that's why we did the interview. Whereas other folks, it was like, okay, I'm already talking to them about other stuff. I see they have a book too. I will skim through the book to find things that will actually contribute to the interview. But I've kind of evolved with that over time as I've done more and more of these things. So for this time, I already owned the Elvis Costello 2016 Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink. It's a 600 plus page book. I didn't even finish it this time, but it was good to have a fresh experience to see what was appealing and unappealing. And in this case, when I'm not actually frantically preparing for an interview with a particular person, like, what am I actually looking for? What am I getting out of this? Right. Erica, what was your, in terms of some of the people that I've talked to are even not songwriters or the way that they write songs is very different from the way that they would write prose. Maybe they're using a ghostwriter, not even doing it. So Brownstein, is was this a mixture of her comedy career and her music career? or Not at all. And that's why I was kind of interested in it originally was I was like, oh, well, I don't know her music, but I know Portlandia. So I find that fascinating. When she came out on Portlandia, I was kind of like, who is this person? And people were saying, oh, she was in a really successful indie band for a long time. But it didn't seem like there were a lot of acting prior. So I thought maybe it would kind of get into that, which it did a little bit, but she barely mentioned Portlandia. So no, I think for her, she's really smart. She's a really intelligent human who has a natural way with words and transporting you to a place in time. Like it feels like I was reading a true Gen Xers account of like even one of the first stories she tells about being in college is getting to see Nirvana play. And then how her band was influenced by them. She talks about record labels. It's all this stuff that I kind of was privy to by the time I got to college, but I had kind of missed out on the first cool wave of it. But for her, I feel like what I read is much more of an exploration of her figuring out who she was and who she was within the realm of music and the fact that she felt like a different person on stage than she did 
in life. So her music, it's a part of her, but the way that she talks about it is like, that was the part of her life that was performative, how she maybe wanted to be seen, but how she didn't actually feel inside. To me, that was extremely interesting because that feels very much like what it is to be an actor. And I think a lot of musicians probably feel that way too, right? You have a persona on stage and then you have who you actually are off stage and how that actually feels. And it's a lot less glamorous than people might think. So it sounds like she's kind of an all around artist and created this in writing this thing. You know, she was not going to use a ghostwriter or something because she is actually creative with words, but it's a very different part of her brain and a different part of her expression than doing the music. So was there like much detail about specific music compositions in there? She would talk about the lyrics of certain things. She would talk about the way something sounded or the way that they wanted to express themselves on stage. She didn't take apart a song, if that's what you're talking about. She didn't say like, this is how we compose this. The thing that's interesting to me to read as somebody who is not nearly as successful as a musician as any of the people we read about, but somebody who has studied music since she was three. It's interesting to read things about people like Carrie, who didn't have formal training at all. And the way she looks at music is very different than the way that I look at music. And maybe I could come across as somebody with my nose up in the air, and that's not what I'm trying to say. It's just that to me, there's less magic a lot of times in music than it seems like there is for somebody who is self-taught and just like, oh, we created this sound. And I think it's fascinating to see how they, how the processes differ based on how you learned music, how you're introduced to music in the first place. Like to her, it was just fascinating. Is there some mythology to that as well? That someone who is, whether a natural or an autodidact or whatever, who is able to do this without the training, we just see in a different light. And whether it's Jimi Hendrix playing the guitar backwards because that's how he learned, he had to teach himself and he's still just brilliant. I think you get some extra credit for that or the benefit of the doubt for kind of having this extra greatness that comes along with it and nothing against being taught because it's great that you were, but it's just, it's a different journey and a different path that some people take. Well, and I think it reminds you also, music is not created. I think when you learn with a classical lilt from an early age, I don't want to say they beat out the joy from you because they don't. That's not what they're trying to do. But there's so much methodology about like, do this and this is the right way to do it. And there is certainly a lot of snootiness even amongst people who are specifically in the pop genre for sure. But I would say there is a freedom and a joyfulness when you have started just because you purely love a thing versus you're starting piano lessons at this age and this is how it's going to go. Yeah, Laura, fill us in on that because that really seems to jibe with what you were not only communicating with yourself, but just that whole New York new wave scene. And yeah, how did that filter through this, this Blondie book? You see, the thing is with autobiographies or memoirs, it's going to reflect the character of who's writing it. Even Keith Richards' autobiography, which is considered the primo of music biographies, it was co-written, or at least he had a writer helping him. But in terms of what I found in Debbie's book is, in terms of Debbie, what I found was she opened the door to her heart and soul about this much and then closed it. You mean in writing the book or in her career? No, no, I'm talking about the book, about how the book comes across about herself and about her career. In terms of her career, you're asking me about how well it reflected her career, you're saying? I'm just trying to figure out what you mean. You had expressed so much joy of in your own book about how 
you guys weren't trained musicians. You just liked being around the scene. And it seems exactly what Erica was describing in terms of what the ethic among folks like you and Debbie Harry, who's active in the same scene. The thing that you find in her book is that it's not that different. She moved to the Lower East Side. She grew up over here in Jersey. And she actually came here to become a visual artist. And she just enjoyed and thrilled with the environment. It was very dark then. It was very dirty. As we all know, the city was falling apart. It was very dangerous. But there was an energy, like I talk about in my book, that was coming with the introduction of punk rock. And But even before that, because she was in a couple of bands before that, the Stilettos and Wind in the Willows and other things that she was doing. But it's not like she studied music as a kid. I believe she might have studied some piano. It's not like she came to New York or came to the Lower East Side with this goal of becoming a performer, she kind of fell into it because all her friends were hanging out and having fun and dancing and smoking pot and doing drugs. And they would get together and sing and dance. And it just sort of seemed to just come together. The one thing, and this comes out early in the book, which on one level disturbs me and on another level I'm cool with, (laughs) is that she was very aware from a very young age of how beautiful she was. In fact, there was a quote, I think she said, I knew from a very young age, and this is back in the beginning of the book when she was writing about her childhood, that I was very sexually attractive. I mean, we're talking like five, six. And I was like, what? And that kind of, I don't know, feeling of hers exists throughout the whole book. And so it didn't seem in terms of the facts of the matter that she came to New York to be on stage and be a rock and roll person and have a band and stuff. She fell into that. However, Throughout all the time, she was very aware of how attractive she was and that she used that. And I have to say, knowing her and spending time with her, she was always very sweet, always very nice. But you always got a sense that there was always going to be distance between you and her. And that's the same thing that comes out in this book. Well, maybe Mark can yeah expand on what it's like to use sex appeal, like raw sex appeal to get what you want in life. Yeah, Mark, <laughs> you're so good at it. That's how Brian and Ken are getting their book deals. <laughs> Brian, tell us about the Aussie thing, more stories of getting drunk, or what is this? It's clear by the time he got around to writing this that he had been through rehab a few times and was used to speaking like someone who has sat around the circle and done that because he was very, very open about his struggles with drugs and alcohol and violence and all the trouble it caused him over his life. Not in a real morose sort of way, because I think he talks about not having regrets and it's the life that he had, but they go hand in hand. And he talks about having bowls of cocaine around the studio while they were recording. I mean, it was just part of their process. It's a very entertaining book. At one point, he talks about how Sharon got him into rehab for the first time. And she described it as going to a spa where they were going to teach me how to drink like a gentleman. And of course, it was the Betty Ford Clinic that she was sending him to. And it was his first of, it sounds like, many times in rehab. I think they're so linked for him as a performer. And you probably couldn't tell one story without the other. Reading his book and actually picking his book, because we had so many books to pick from, right? I mean, just, it's almost overwhelming. Memoirs alone, let alone biographies. And I started to wonder a little bit about whether just by the nature of being a musician and presenting your art in this really specific way that required some interpretation by an audience, does every musician in some sense need a biography to be fully understood? 
or if put another way, are there any musicians out there where the music just sort of speaks for itself? And yeah, I totally get that person and where they're coming from through their music. And there's maybe not a lot to be gained from having this additional written document that adds the context, adds the story, adds the life, all these things that we don't maybe necessarily get. Sure. It depends what kind of, I think, musician you're talking about, because I'm sure there are some who have been kind of picked as here, you're the singer of these songs and here are the songs you're going to sing. And it's very curated. I'm sure there are some people like that who maybe don't have much to do with their own creativity in it, who might not have a lot more to say about that music because it's not even music they necessarily feel tied to. But when you're talking about somebody who has at least written their own lyrics or has more of the creative process, then I think there is usually a need to be understood because it's just a piece of poetry, right? It can be interpreted so many ways, right? That's interesting that you say that because Debbie wrote the majority of the lyrics for a lot of their songs and definitely the big hits like Heart of Glass and stuff. But she did not technically write. What it was was an interview. She was interviewed by Sylvie Simmons, who's written a lot of big, big books, as you know. Um, And it's just a collection of these interviews. It's just her talking. Maybe that's sort of the problem with the book. I don't know. But part of that says to me, writing it didn't make sense to her, even though she was a lyricist and she writes a lot of poetry. I don't think it's been published, but she does that. So it's interesting you're bringing up that point because I was surprised that she didn't actually write the book. She just spoke it. It's such an interesting relationship between these things. A couple of the things that I read were actually by people who are not mainly the songwriters. So Chris France from Talking Heads, Laura actually hooked me up with this interview. Thank you for that. A trained artist and a very verbal guy but was kind of frozen out earlier in the process. David Byrne wanted to write his own lyrics. So Chris Franz has some lyrical credits early on. But after a certain point, at least with Talking Heads, it's it's not that. And Chris mostly talks about, it's mostly acting kind of as a witness. And so he's describing in great detail the tours they went on, all the people they met, the influences they had, the sort of setting, you know, describing in great detail the gross New York apartment that he and Tina and David shared in the early days. So that's, you know, for folks that are interested in those bands that he were involved in, Talking Heads and Tom Club, really interesting. But David Byrne's book is How Music Works. You get the feeling that for David to talk about his own circumstances, his, you know, there's probably some interesting stuff in his upbringing, like why did he get so weird? But it really is mostly his personality expressed itself through the music and talking about the art of the music and about the music business and the stuff that's in his book, what he felt like he needed to put out which is not an autobiography at all. And in fact, right up front, it's like, you can enjoy this even if you don't care about me and my music or talking heads at all, because I'm just going to, you know, here's some of the wisdom that I've gained over the years. Yeah, just such a different relationship between their creativity and what they feel they have to say. Now let's take a moment for a very important sponsor break from She's Birdie. You know, for years I was looking around for some sort of personal safety device that would be convenient and easy to use, and I finally found one. She's Birdie is a personal safety alarm. It attaches right onto your keychain. It's actually super cute. It comes in a variety of colors. All you have to do is give it a quick pull and an alarm will sound, as well as a flashing light alerting people that you may need help. And unlike other deterrents like pepper spray or a taser, this one is safe, easy to use, and it's effective. Protect yourself with a personal safety alarm that you'll actually bring along with you. 
Right now, She's Birdie is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase when you go to she'sbirdie.com slash pretty. Go to She's Birdie, spelled S-H-E-S-B-I-R-D-I-E dot com slash pretty for 15% off your first purchase. That's she'sbirdie.com slash pretty. And I want to tell you about Mint Mobile. After the year we've all been through, saving money should be at the top of everyone's resolution list. So if you're paying insane amounts of money every month for wireless, what are you doing? Switching to Mint Mobile is the easiest way to save this year. And as the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you maximize your savings with plans starting at just $15 a month. I've been a Mint Mobile customer for like a year and a half. We were advertising for them for Partial Examined Life. They gave me a free plan at first. When that ran out, I just signed up with my own actual money because it's cheap and it's good. By going online and eliminating the traditional cost of retail, Mint Mobile passes the savings on to you. All the plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on your nation's largest 5G network. You keep your own phone. They just send you a little card. You slot into it. And if you are not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their seven-day money-back guarantee. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash pretty. That's mintmobile.com slash pretty. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash pretty. There's safety. They can protect themselves behind the song or behind the lyrics. And that's kind of harder to do when you're quote unquote writing a memoir. And then I see that in Debbie's memoir when I look at when she writes about her childhood. And it's all sort of a relation of facts. A, B, C, D. One plus two equals three. There's no like deep thinking. For instance, and this is really freaky and goes to my theory, two things. One, she really believes that she had a connection or came across Ted Bundy. And the reason why this is fascinating is because when she talks about those young years in the Lower East Side in New York, she was, I have to say, I could probably lose count of how many times she was sexually abused and or raped. And when she writes about it, it's like I'm reading a scientific study about how rape occurred in 1976. You know what I'm saying? It's amazing to me when she talks about, you know, there was this guy that she'd gotten involved. She'd met Chris Stein. You know, she was involved with Chris Stein for many, many years. And the two of them pretty much put Blondie together. They were living together in the Lower East Side, did a gig at CBGB's and came home one night and they were accosted by this guy with a knife. He wanted drugs and money. And he took them into their house and with a knife and everything, tied up Chris and then tied up Debbie and ended up raping Debbie in the book. She says, yeah. And then he fucked me. And then he took our guitars and he left. And she said, I was more upset about losing the guitars than I was about being raped. And then boom, new paragraph, next incident. I was just like, wait a minute. What the fuck? And this happens a few times. So I think that that writing lyrics and performing and the songs, like I say, and you would know better, Mark, it's kind of a way to protect yourself. I know that there's that thing about when you write poetry and you write songs, you're digging deeper into yourself, you're revealing your soul. But in a way, it can also be a, a way to protect yourself. And I think looking at Debbie, that a lot of that happens, particularly in this book. I definitely think that it's possible, don't you, Mark? I mean, you're a songwriter and a musician. I can see that in the work of other artists. <laughs> I'm pretty transparent and simple. Okay, and... okay. <laughs> I believe you. So, Mark, are you one that we don't need a biography for? Because it's <laughs> all in the music? It's all out there. I enjoy, as you know, I just did this 
Christmas thing where I had conversations. Like, I don't feel like a general biography would be interesting from me. So in this Ellis Costello book, the problem I have with all these books is getting past the talking about their childhood. And Ellis Costello is really interested in waxing rhapsodic about his childhood. And even before he was born, he's talking about It's all through the lens of music about how his like parents met each other. Part of it is she's working in a record store in England and she's smuggling stuff through a friend from America, this like avant-garde jazz and giving it to people like the person who became her husband. And that's how they met. Really talking about musical culture. And I'm sure there's a hundred plus pages of that. It's just that Elvis or Patrick, his strategy is give a little bit of that and then jump to like 1981 and talk about how he's meeting Paul McCartney and stuff and then jump back to more childhood stuff and then jump forward. Like, so he's sparing us just a straight 150 pages of that old stuff. That I think for anybody is probably there's a reason it's the most fun thing to think about your childhood. And it's interesting if you're reading about somebody who's in a culture that you've not experienced, but if it's kind of like your own upbringing or other people that you've already read their stuff by, like what it's like to grow up in Schaumburg versus what it's like to grow up in Northbrook, like it's not necessary. (laughs) It's not necessarily a point of interest. So the music as an inlet, like, and I also just coincidentally had been sort of writing a short, a philosophical autobiography for Partially Examined Life fans using that as the theme of like, you know, what the key beats were. And I think you have to have some theme like that. I think music really lends itself to that. So it ends up being a story as much about musical culture, what it was like to grow up listening to the Beatles or in Laura's case, to grow up in this wonderful scene than it is about your own specific incidents that happen to you, which are usually not as interesting as what Laura's describing happened to Debbie Harry. In Carrie's book, I found both interesting, but I think that was because it set me in a specific time and place, right? She grew up in the Northwestern U.S. during a time when a very specific type of music was coming in. And there was something to probably the weather and how that area supported each other with their own bands and, you know, the whole culture of going to each other's shows. She painted a great picture about that. There's a specific sound to it and a specific culture to it. And that, I think, is interesting. And if you can interweave that with your growing up story, all the better. It's the sales pitch often that with Laura's books, certainly, right? I mean, it's right there in the subtitle talking about oh yeah, you're cohorting with Blondie and with Bowie and like that is the whole, not that many people know you in advance and are like, I need to read the Laura Davis book. No, it's about the scene. Whereas Brian, yours seems like the opposite, right? It's Ozzy. It's someone who's actually possibly not even best known for being a musician, maybe of a certain age. They know him from his MTV reality show with his family and they know he's a musician, but maybe beyond a few songs, or they know of his, some of his exploits with biting a head off a bat or whatever, but it's a bit of a music education. It, it's a completely from the other direction. His early life stories are a lot to do with avoiding work, getting high, and getting attention. And these are all things that we associate with a rock and roller that maybe has nothing to do with actual music. But as it was, he could sing really well in that he was also teamed up with some really talented musicians in order to make Black Sabbath happen. What I also found really enjoyable is what really felt like a small community of musicians 
And he would just talk offhand about these bands. It was almost like a 70s key party, the way that they just changed partners. And well, this guy dropped out of this band and now Eric Clapton is playing with this. And he would just keep name dropping and not in a way that to make himself seem more important because he doesn't have to, right? He's Ozzy Osbourne, but it made it seem like England or London was very small. And I think in a way it was just the way that, you know, New York may have millions of people in it, but the music scene is very small. And that's always the sense I get, Laura, when I hear about, and in the 70s, it was even smaller. A couple of venues, if you weren't there, you might as well not even be there. So you have these epicenters of all the talent happening. I think I'm more aware of it being of the U.S. scene than the England scene. So it was nice to sort of hear that parallel going on in the 60s and 70s over there as well. So I just wanted to mention that the autobiography I tried to get first just because I was like, well, this sounds weird and I've never been a fan, but I'd be interested to read the Marilyn Manson's autobiography, The Long Hard Road Out of Hell. There was a long waiting list for it, so I didn't bother with it. And now there's all this stuff coming out about him and I'm glad that I didn't support it. But it also kind of brings to mind how much do you believe of people's autobiography? Like I haven't read it, so I don't I don't know like what he actually talks about, but he's talking, the name of it is The Long Hard Road Out of Hell. Well, it sounds to me like he's getting ready to go right back in. How do we know how much of it we can actually trust? And is that important? I would think so. It's an autobiography. You hope that it's nonfiction, but it's clearly not always. You can say that about many different kinds of books, but at least with Debbie, I know I, having been in the same scene, even though she was there earlier and she's 16, 17 years older than me, but even so, I mean, there are things that I saw that she wrote about that I was like, yeah, right. Yeah, I know that. Yes. It's a good question. I mean, when she wrote, but now we've reached chapter 12 without a body count and there is no turning back. Writing my story still feels like unexplored territory. Since I'm too old, too claustrophobic, and too bad at math to travel into outer space, I've been forced to go into inner space. Not so physically confined a feeling, but maybe even more scary. Looking at what we have so far, it's good to see that I've accomplished more in my life than I ever expected to. She's kind of saying, you know, you're only going to get so much in this book. And I think that in terms of trusting that, I guess because I know her, I can say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That reflects her personality, her character. So, yeah, we can't really always know, I guess, is what they're telling me the truth. I mean, but if you think about it, like think about Chris Franson, you know, the talking heads. I mean, you can compare knowing them. I mean, you can get a sense of what you've heard about them, maybe, and then think about that in terms of what you're reading. You know, David Byrne is known famously for being freaking insane. Maybe Chris France said in his book that Byrne is on the autism scale. I don't know. Not that that means he's crazy, but that definitely means there's a certain quality in the way he does his work and relates to people. Chris is pretty complimentary about David's talents, but mean about his personality and the way he (laughs) treats other people. I like the idea of reading dueling autobiographies. You know, I ran into that with Talking Heads a little bit. Also, so I've started this Elvis Costello book. I haven't read enough of it to see how this will work. But I'd also read Bruce Thomas, the bass player for The Attractions, that eventually Elvis kicked out, which is why The Attractions doesn't exist anymore as a band, first wrote a sort of fictionalized version. There have been three different people that I've run into, two of whom I interviewed, and then Bruce, who I almost interviewed. That has yet to actually happen, who first wrote, you know, stories that were clearly about the band and its travels but wrote it as if it were a novel. So you don't know then whether there are intentionally, you know, once you do that, like, well, then I can fictionalize things as much as I want. I don't have to be telling the truth 
strangely, Bruce then subsequently wrote a more straight autobiography, much longer thing, and was, you know, also giving his side of the stories of his conflicts with Elvis. There's another Wishbone Ash is a, I interviewed one of the guys, Andy Powell from that band, and he and the singer Martin Turner had had actual legal, like suing each other over the use of the name of the band kind of thing, having dueling versions of the same band. And they've both written autobiographies often about the same instances. So I tend to think that if you're going to go through this trouble to writing such a long thing, like why would you lie extensively on purpose? But of course, if you're expressing how you saw it at the time, then that's going to differ how other people saw it. Just, you know, the normal epistemological trouble that we all have remembering how things actually happened and wanting in our minds to take credit for more creativity than we actually had, etc. There's a complicating element to that, which is that rock and roll is rife with drugs. That's how you function. When I was writing my book and I wrote a lot about the abuse I suffered from Jimmy Destry, the keyboard player in Blondie, and the publisher came to me and said, do you think he might bring a legal action? against you after publishing this book. And I talked to an entertainment lawyer I know, and she said no, because he's well known to have been abusing a lot of drugs at that time. So the likelihood of him even winning anywhere near close a case against you is very low. And part of that problem is, yeah, how, how well do you remember? And it's complicated by the very large amount of drugs like the bowl of cocaine. We're all unreliable narrators at best. And then add blackout periods, right? Where the cops told you what you did and you have no memory of it. And it's... <laughs> Absolutely. So that's a complicating element. And Debbie, who had for years and years, the majority of her life took heroin. When Chris Stein, you know, her boyfriend at the time and the lead guitarist in Blondie, became very, very ill in the early 80s. He had to go into the hospital for a long time he was in a lot of pain. And Debbie used to bring him heroin to help him with the pain. And the doctors were cool with it because he was in a huge amount of pain. She's like, all right. Heroin was just the way she lived. 40 years later, after starting heroin, does that play into your memory issues? Well, I tend to think so. Erica, the book you read, was there anything comparable in terms of things that would distort her recollection of events? No, 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 no. It was funny. She talked about her crazy party nights. And she's like, it was actually very lame. Like there was this one night where I made out with all these different people. And like, she just didn't have crazy stories that way. I'm sure there were parties and some drugs, but she didn't go into it. And she was, I think she was pretty clean overall. And I think she was just like working really, really hard to try to make this band happen at a time when it was interesting reading all the accounts of people who were trying to compliment the band and still complimenting them as a chick band. So that was where a lot of the emphasis was focused, was creating a band with female musicians that could just be considered a band instead of a girl band. But one thing you guys did mention that I was thinking about as well, Laura, you were just alluding to, like, is anybody going to take issue with this? Carrie does call out various people, including herself, for behavior I just think to myself, I probably would never be able to write an autobiography because I'm so afraid of recourse, right? But she'll be like, oh yeah, we had to kick so-and-so out of the band because they weren't pulling their weight or they weren't doing this or that. And I'm like, you know, this person's going to read this, right? Like I have this <laughs> mind where I'm like, they're going to read this. What are they going to say? Are they going to call you out? There just seems to be either an air of who gives a shit. And that's one way in which I don't feel like I would ever be cool enough to be a musician who is just like, yeah, I say whatever. This is who I am. It is a risk. And part of that's legal and part of that's just like, I don't like conflict. When you write a memoir, and particularly in music or rock and roll, you're definitely going to have conflict at some, you know, people are not <laughs> yeah. going to be happy. In fact, a lot of the people in my band were like, what about some of the things I wrote about? 
it'd be a boring story if you didn't. I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who wants to read that one? Hey, we got to sell books. <laughs> With Erica, we've even edited some things, at least one thing out, an anecdote that you told that like, oh, even though I didn't use any names, it probably reflects poorly on this choreographer that I was mentioning. So let's just edit that out. <laughs> like you really don't want to offend anybody. No, like give me other people's words to say. I don't need to say my own. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. We specifically wanted to focus on books here. Often in the past when we've tried to focus on books, Erica has been like, but I like to watch things better. Well, that was a great impression of Erica, Mark. <laughs> really, really well done. I thought I was listening to her. <laughs> you know, but I'm also attracted to like these kind of behind the music sort of things. Mm -hmm. And if I interview... Yeah, I just Grand Funk Railroad, one of the guys. So like I jumped over to YouTube and watched the Grand Funk Railroad story. And like there are weird cliches and limitations to that format. You know, and I remember hearing like what a 10 part split ends audio <laughs> presentation of like the split ends story that like some wonderful, you know, ex member fan of the band put together and interviewed all the people and you insert the music. Like there are other ways to deliver up this kind of information that you're getting in the autobiography. Is it the same appeal? I would be interested to see this story in television or film format. Looks like they tried to get a TV show going. A pilot was in the works and then it was eventually dropped. So who knows for whatever reason. But for this, I think it would really work. Would she play herself as an old person like Howard Stern did in his own private parts autobiography? It was like, you got to keep in mind that I'm 19 here. I'm obviously not 19, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, they already had it cast with a young girl who looked a lot like her. Um, but yeah, I think this one would work. I don't know about some of the others. They're certainly popular. I mean, we had like that whole, I haven't watched any of them, but the Queen movie that came out a couple of years ago. Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, I mean, certainly it sounds like the Debbie Harry story and the Ozzy story would both make really good. Biopics. I'm not anticipating a a <laughs> film version of this Elvis Costello book, which is just so deeply ruminative and quoting his own lyrics and things like that is a different thing altogether. But if you're focusing on all the crazy stuff that somebody did, yeah, or happened to them, I should say. I think there's something you maybe just can't always get across in that format of video and, and audio and having to edit and being confined to that format, because sometimes it just you have to take your time narratively and, and get your story out in the way it needs to get out. You'll let it expand to the thing that it needs to be. I think also if you only have two hours, you really have to weigh what you think is important in a way that not that books should meander exactly, but they should be allowed to take certain paths that maybe aren't all equally as vital, but all add texture in a way that I, it's, it's just a different thing altogether. I've also found these biopics to be a little bit exhausting. They're so focused on the music in a way that I feel like almost starts to feel, I don't want to say inauthentic, but almost so what at some point. The Elton John one in particular, I left feeling very empty at the end of Rocket Man. It just, that one did very little for me. What about Bohemian Rhapsody? It happens to be a, that Live Aid bit that they did, the piece of, of Live Aid I've seen so many times. So to have seen that part recreated, seeing it in the theater, it was such a great experience. I think it papered over the fact that the rest of it wasn't very good from my perspective. I wanted to go see it again and then like just come in the theater for the last half hour because I didn't really want to see it again. I just wanted to see the concert again. But truly, I guess I didn't love it that much either. I don't, I'm sure that this is out there somewhere, but uh, Scorsese is actually doing a film on uh, the New York Dolls, which is interesting too, because Debbie talks a lot about how she was good friends with them in the beginning because she had a car, grew up 
driving, which is a little foreign to us New Yorkers. <laughs> but she used to help the dolls and drive them around a lot because they needed to go around with their equipment or whatever. But the big thing was that they needed to meet with this guy, Marty Thau. And I'll explain why I'm telling you this in a minute. But Marty Thau lived upstate. And Marty Thau was a big uh, record executive at the time, but he ended up becoming the manager of the dolls. And as I say, Scorsese is actually in the process of putting together this movie about the New York Dolls. Now, it's not like a movie about any one particular member, but about the dolls and perhaps reflecting that time. Scorsese seems to be very attached to that period of time in New York. For instance, he did that show, Remember Vinyl, with Mick Jagger, which that's not exactly a visualization of a memoir or of an autobiography. It's more about you know, the band and the time. But it's curious to me. And also, that's another thing that is really weird. When I was reading Debbie's book, and she was talking about driving dolls around in the beginning, because they needed a car, she would drive them up to Marty Thau's house upstate. And he ended up producing an album that my band was on. And when I read this book, I was like, I didn't realize his background with the dolls. And I was like, wow, the spider web that goes out from when I was reading this book about how we're all so connected in these ways that we're not even, we don't even realize in terms of that time in, in New York. It's kind of shocking. But that time in rock and roll in New York is very popular right now. And so that's one of the, another reason why Scorsese is probably doing this film, because it's a very hot time right now to be looking this at. This is also a documentary, right? I expect so, yeah. And I think sometimes that can be a lot more useful of a medium than a biopic. I feel like so often biopics are done to try to gain an actor an Academy Award. Oh, really? <laughs> That's what it feels like, yes. But documentaries, we don't always need to see somebody's interpretation. I think of, you know, Debbie Harry, for example. Right. Maybe we want to actually see that in a documentary format. And there are so many great documentaries out there now. Like people really seem to have cracked a new level into the way that you can present a documentary. There are definitely good versions of both. Perhaps those are topics for future episodes. I just kind of wanted to get some comparison out there. I do think that with the book, tell me if this is sort of reflects your practice. You need to have Spotify or YouTube or whatever at the ready and just pull up stuff. Like Laura in her book, name dropped all these bands that she ran into, many of which I'd never heard of. And I really used your book as a way of getting to know that scene in a way that I would not otherwise, you know, of course, I've heard Blondie, I've heard some of these major groups, yeah. but all these little minor things that were a big deal at the time or were a big deal to you. Oh, it yeah. was just wonderful to kind of get immersed in that way. And I like the same thing. I'm often disappointed. So like with the Chris Franz book or the many of the other books, they they focus on the part that they're most famous for. Of course, that's what most readers are going to care about. But that's not my approach. I'd rather that he not stop at 1988, but keep going. And then I could continue on this journey with them because that's how I would approach it is that, okay, now he's talking about the first Tom Tom Club album. So I will listen to that album while I'm listening to this part of the book. In fact, the first one of these that I read, Space Cake by Kevin Godley, who was in 10CC and then Godley and Cream, he did it purely, there's no paper version, I think. Maybe there is now, but he did it as an interactive book so that he could have hyperlinks. So he could have, as you're going, I want you to hear this thing. And in fact, I'm going to upload a special playlist and a special extra stuff so you could hear this thing that I recorded in 1969 that you would not otherwise necessarily be able to track down. And that, that, was, that was just a great way to, to hear this. 
I mean, that looks like it's probably going to become the way we do things. I mean, that'd be a great way for musician memoirs to be done, that be interactive like that, because listening to the music that the person creates opens them up to you. Even if you look at an audiobook version, I don't listen to enough audiobooks to know, but why not add in the music? Yeah, add that into the audiobook, yeah. Because it will force you to listen to it at 100% speed rather than <laughs> that, that 150%. A, a possible down, down. Yeah, did they side. do any of that with the, with the Aussie? They even had an interview with him at the end, but it was... That's weird. Which was interesting, but there was no music in it. It's probably different. It's rights issues or whatever. That's, you know, why the, the joy of hyperlinking to something else and you don't have to have the rights to it. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a nice thing. Well, thank you so much for joining us in this, Laura. Obviously, it's a deep mine here, but we got a chance to splash in this area. So cool. Yeah. Oh, it's a lot of fun. Great meeting you guys. Wonderful. <laughs> Thanks. You too, Laura. And I'm excited to read your book. I'm going to read it. Oh, wow. And I want to hear everything that you think. It's called The Girl in the Back, A Female Drummer's Life with Bowie, Blondie, and the 70s Rock Scene. And I was named in the top 10 of music books by Billboard Magazine in 2018. And it also won the ASCAP Award for Excellence in Music Writing. I'm awesome. very grateful for that. And you can hear more of Laura also on the Five Fic Podcast on the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network. Absolutely. I've even done a couple with, with her with that. Thank you, listeners. Thanks. Thanks. Take care. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners, also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200.